0: Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou White.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're certainly be excited to be here on the air with you again talking to the manufacturing industry and anyone else who's listening across the planet on subjects that uh, are are very much of interest to the manufacturing industry. Today we're going to be talking about commercial drones, also known as drones, uh, uninhabited or unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, lots of names for them, all for the same devices. And we've got two guests on to talk about that. And before we go to our guests and talk about uh, commercial use of drones, particularly in manufacturing, I want to talk to my co-host, Lou, and uh, see what happened last week on a postscript and what the news is going on. Lou, how are you today?
2: Well, wow, that's uh, quite a long introduction. Thank you. I did that uh, one breath. Get, every, Everything, <laughs> all in one breath. We're, we're getting better. year and a half of this, and uh, we've gotten very good at it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> everything is uh, terrific. Came back from vacation, a little sunburned, well-rested, and uh, looking at retirement as a... Uh, A closer reality than not. Uh, Only kidding, (laughs) of course. Anyhow, uh, last week, uh, post-scripting our two shows that we had last week. We did have uh, one on social media, which I'll talk about in a moment. And the second one was a breaking news story regarding the uh, XM Bank and the fact that they were losing their... Um, reauthorization or their charter to operate, uh, which they still don't have. And if I'm not mistaken, today is the day they lose their chartership. So it is. It is. It is. So uh, let me talk about social media first. uh, We did have two guests on, uh, one from uh, KO Marketing Associates, uh, Derek Edmund, Managing Partner, and we had Danny Mishak, Managing Director of Vista Tech, and they discussed at great length about social media in regards to industrial marketing, manufacturing marketing, and so on. Uh, great show. Uh, these two fellows really know their, um, know their business, they know their market, and I strongly recommend that anyone who is behind the curve on social uh, media and social marketing, that these two fellows are people you might want to reach out to or reach out to somebody because you're, you'll be falling further and further behind the curve and it's tough catching up. Uh, the second show, which was uh, the breaking news story about XM Bank, uh, XM Bank uh, rechartership or reauthorization was attached to the uh, fast track trade bill which uh, they dumped that off the bill and they passed the bill. Uh, And uh, it looks as though that Mitch McConnell is looking to attach it to the, um, there's another bill out, uh, the highway transportation bill, uh, that perhaps they will be able to get that passed uh, this week. If not, they're all fools in Washington because uh, XM Bank does present uh, something like $600 million to our treasury with gains and losses in their decisions that they make. It's still brought in $600 million. And I dare say there isn't another agency in our entire government that loses that little. So, um, <laughs> I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that, uh, they'll do something about it. And we did have, uh, on that show, we had, uh, Dan Clifton, who's the head of uh, policy research for uh, Strategies and International inter- Institutional Investment firm. Uh, we had uh, Debbie Dingell, who's the uh, congresswoman from the 12th district in uh, Michigan, and uh, we had a uh, repeater. Uh, Linda Dempsey, vice president of NAM, which is the National Association of Manufacturers, and uh, it was a terrific show. Uh, and uh, the the two women in particular were really, uh, really out there with their pitchforks and torches um, about getting this thing uh, re- reauthorized. Uh that being said, hopefully uh, Congress will do something positive this week, and even though it's a vacation week. And if they don't do it this week, uh, they're not going to do it for a while because after all of their hard work that they've put in the last 60 days, they're going to take another vacation. <laughs> so that being said, I'm going to turn it back to you, Tim, because I'm beginning to get a little hostile. <laughs> yeah, well, we were going to do a show on but Washington
1: isn't screwing up, but we couldn't come up with anything. So we canceled <laughs> that show entirely. Uh, we, today we're going to talk about commercial drones, and we have two very knowledgeable guests on today. We have Brian Taylor, who's director of the University of Minnesota Uninhabited Aerial Vehicle Laboratory. That sounds really cool. I'm expecting to walk in there and see drones buzzing around the size of fruit flies. And we have Andrew Amato, General Manager and Editor-in-Chief of DroneLife.com. And by the way, we'll ask both of these gentlemen to shamelessly plug their websites because we want you to go there and get information. Andrew, I'd like to start with you and give us kind of a, a sense of you know where drones are today. It seems to be a, uh, a growing industry that everyone's talking about and no one knows a
2: lot about.
3: Yeah, uh, well, thanks, first of all, for having me on. appreciate the opportunity. Um, As far as where drones are, um, you could look out your window, but it's probably not going to be one right there at the moment. Um, (laughs) But there might be in a year or so. uh, The technology is moving very, very quickly, and there's a few established roles that they're already playing in this country and around the world, but then there's lots of opportunity for new use cases being discovered all the time. So it's becoming quite a uh, buzzing industry, if you will. You're going to have to excuse the drone puns. There's just way That's too many. All right.
1: yeah, drone puns are okay. And, and Brian, what's going on in the UAV lab at the University of Minnesota?
4: Oh, a whole heck of a lot. Um, so we do both fundamental research and applied research here. Um, On the fundamental side, we're using uh, UAVs or drones um, to try and make both drones and manned aircraft, so the passenger airliners that everybody flies on, we're trying to make those safer and more fuel efficient. Um, And we are using the UAV as a way of taking all this great theory within the university and applying it in a real-world environment. Um, and then on the applied side, um, we're mostly looking at precision agriculture right now. Um, but as Andrew mentioned, there's so many different, uh, opportunities for drones to be used in business. And so I could see us rapidly expanding some of our applied research towards look at pipelines or surveying, um, electrical transmission lines, things of that nature.
1: Those are some fascinating uses. How are they using them in agriculture? I've heard about this, and I'm a student from the University of Wisconsin School of Agriculture, so I understand how an Aggie might think about this. How are they going to use drones for agriculture?
4: Well, right now, um, drones are used quite a bit in agriculture. Uh, There was an ag show not too long ago. Um, where you had uh, uh, several drone manufacturers showing off their uh, products and and showing how they can fly over fields. And currently, these drones are taking nice pictures um, of the farmer's field. Uh, Unfortunately, you're just not getting too much useful data from it. Um, So that's where our uh, research really plays a role. And uh, so we have a a two-year grant from the state of Minnesota, and we're looking at using drones um, to what we're calling close the loop around agriculture and specifically around soybean aphids. And so uh, soybean aphids are these really tiny bugs um, and they get on the soybean plants and uh, hurt the yields. And so the idea is if you could have a drone overflying these fields very often with specialized equipment that can map exactly where the soybeans are and in what population, Um, then uh, you can work with economists to figure out when the optimal time to spray those aphids is and minimize um, the amount of pesticide that's used which helps the environment but also um, improves yields for the farmer and lowers costs for the farmer so it's kind of a win-win-win type situation.
1: Yeah, it's a really neat use I'm kind of excited to see how they continue to use them in agriculture. Andrew you know, the big issue out there is the privacy issue. Everybody's worried about looking out their bathroom window in their Sunday best and seeing a drone staring back at them. What's the reality?
3: The reality is that drone probably isn't looking at you. Uh, <laughs> that's just people, the the general thought people have is they are much more important than they actually are to the person flying the drone. Um, there was an incident just like that in Seattle about six or eight months ago, and the woman thought she was being spied on, but really, the company that was flying the drone was there taking pictures of the uh the apartment building that she lived in for maintenance purposes uh, and that is becoming a tremendously popular tool. We actually just got an email this morning asking us if we knew anybody who could help out a company looking to do exactly that in Manhattan. It's a little harder to pull that off in Manhattan, but you know that's the kind of thing that it's not nefarious. It's very legitimate reasons people want to be flying drones next to your apartment building. Um, as far as you know, oh, but they are actually spying on me. The the feeling within the industry is that there's Boyer laws that have existed for umpteen years that are there to protect you from being spied on in your own house. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, there's room for a little more um, enforcement. The state of California recently um, passed a bill that uh, prohibited – basically it prohibits paparazzi from flying a drone over a celebrity's house and taking pictures. They say any picture that you acquire that could not have been taken from where you personally were standing – is illegally obtained. So that's where there is some extra work going into the privacy aspect of it, but there is a lot already in place um, to rely on.
1: It's just going to become a political quagmire as we go forward, Andrew, with the FAA trying to figure out every conceivable misuse of a drone and the Congress trying to write laws as well as they wrote the Obamacare Act, and we're going to have, you know, incomprehensible legislation?
3: I don't think so. I mean, it's obviously going to be difficult, but uh, the first of all, the FAA doesn't have anything to do with privacy, right? So the privacy thing is up to Congress itself. Um, the FAA there is to, is there to make sure that the airspace is safe. Okay. And... So the feeling is that in the direction they seem to be going is that if you're going to be flying commercially, you're going to need a license, just like you have a driver's license. And from what we've seen so far, it's going to be very easy to obtain one of these licenses. Um, The trick is going to be making sure people know all the rules of the air. You know, you took a a test to get your license however many years ago but Mm -hmm. would you still remember all of the rules that were in the book you know that that, that's what i'm talking about it's it's difficult to make sure people know all the rules as they go forward regardless of how prepared they were at the time of getting their license Um, it's it's more it's going to be the onus of responsibility on knowing the rules is going to be on the pilots themselves So that is going to be the challenge.
2: Uh, Okay. I think one of the concerns uh, that uh, seem obvious to me is that, you know, the more successful this becomes, uh, the use of drones in uh, either retail or industrial purposes, the skies are going to get pretty crowded. And how are they going to keep all these drones from colliding into one another and, you know, falling through my windshield while I'm doing, you know, my 80 miles an hour on Route 80 uh, here in New Jersey. Uh, and I think that's uh, one of the – I think that would be more of a concern to me than my privacy issues.
3: And that's a lot of people's main concern. When I say that I work with drones, one of the first questions is, what's going to stop it from, like you say, crashing into me while I'm walking down the street or whatever? Um and the good news is there's a lot of people trying to figure that out. Uh, chief among them being NASA is working with a lot of manufacturers and a lot of veterans of the aerospace industry to create basically a virtual highway so that the computers on board the drones are talking to air traffic control and other planes that are in the sky so that all everything flying around knows where everything Else is and what their trajectory is. And, you know, once there's this, it's very similar to the concept of the Internet of Things. Once the drones are all on the same Internet, so to speak, they have access to all that information, but they also have access to GPS information. So, you know, right now I'm flying over a school, so I don't want to go below 400 feet, or I want to go out of my way to avoid flying over the school, or oh, there's a storm in the forecast for where I'm going, so I want to make sure that I'm paying attention to the radar, maybe have to do an emergency landing, and where can I do the emergency landing? All this information going to onboard computers, that's kind of the thing that NASA is working on. And then at the same time, you have the manufacturers themselves building onboard hardware, sonar, image recognition sensors, that kind of thing, so that when a drone gets in a small space it can perceive all the obstacles around it walls and trees and people and stuff so that it can uh avoid that when it's closer to the when,
2: ground when when do you feel that, that 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 state of the art level uh will exist are, are we talking about a year two years five years 10 years
3: then the well the, the onboard hardware as far as avoiding walls and people when you're down close to the ground, uh, the beginning stages are already there. The demonstrations, it's pretty wild to see. You know, I've said, okay, you think you have this product, now fly that drone at me and see if it hits me. And it doesn't. It's pretty It knows it comes close to you, and then it kind of backs off a little bit because it knows where you are. And there's uh, several companies that have developed hardware that can do that. And now they're starting to open that up so that other people can – understand how it works and build on that. So that the beginning of that is already there and already available on the market for certain drones. Um, NASA's um, unmanned traffic management system is, like you say, probably at least five years away. So we're getting there, but there's a long way to go.
1: Well, that's interesting because we did a show, oh, gosh, maybe a year back on, uh, on some open sourcing where you really look uh, beyond your own industry for answers, and there was a particular uh, flow control issue that one of the manufacturers was looking at, and they found the solution in the pipes between milk tanks on a dairy farm for a particular sensor that sensed a particular flow rate. So it's it's interesting how they come to some of these conclusions. Uh, Brian, I want to go to you, and without giving away any of the secret sauce you're working on at the University of Minnesota, one area that's of interest when you talk about these drones buzzing around the sky is, I know my son has one, and at about 10 minutes it goes, and then it, it comes out of the sky. Uh, what kind of work are you doing, if any, on uh, length or duration of flight?
4: Um, I'm sorry, I didn't catch the last part of that.
1: On length or duration of flight, you, know, how, do you how do we keep these things powered long enough to actually pick up a, a, a package or do its, uh, do its thing? Uh, in longer than 10 minutes
4: Oh sure um, I think it, it just depends on um, what sort of drone you're using um, so we use mostly fixed-wing and uh, with the fixed-wing drones uh, you're looking at close to half an hour um, with an electrically powered vehicle and if we were using gas-powered uh, that could easily be an hour to two hours so It's more of a limitation with the hexacopters than it is with um, the uh, UAV helicopters or UAV fixed-wing vehicles.
1: That's interesting because I hadn't separated them in my head that there are actually different types of vehicles out there. Brian, what are those vehicles? I mean, you just mentioned the fixed-wing and the quadcopter. Are there others?
4: Um, Yeah, uh, everything – that you can imagine is being made unmanned. Um, So you have ground vehicles. Um, Just recently there was this DARPA challenge where they had a bunch of teams come out with ground vehicles, uh, seeing how well they could operate um, walking around and and try and open doors and and do these sort of things that we take for granted. And then um, there's also unmanned underwater vehicles. And of course uh, these UAVs that we're talking about today, um, the three main categories I would describe as as fixed wings, so these look just like any normal airplane, um, and then you have the hexacopters, and that's what people typically associate with being a drone, and, and so that's that's the somewhat smaller vehicle with a bunch of different spinning rotors, um, and then you have helicopters or a single rotor, where that's you have one main rotor blade, um, that's used less often, but uh, notably, um, in agriculture, the the main drone that's used is this Yamaha, um, and that's been used for a long time in Japan. is just starting to be able to be used here commercially, and that's uh, a single rotor UAV.
1: Oh wow, those uh, those are interesting, different types of vehicles. Um, going back to you, Andrew, on uh, a couple of things, and then I want to go to to Brian as well. Innovation really is the key to this industry, and it's happening very, very quickly. Uh, Andrew, what do you see in terms of innovation from academia to industry?
3: Uh, Well, I think actually the agriculture seems to be the big one. So, it's you know, we've kind of already talked about it, but a lot of the uh, kind of obvious use cases for UAVs right now are in agriculture. So a lot of universities specifically agriculture departments are the ones that are starting to get their hands on this and use it and adopt and adapt it in a way that can benefit uh, their students right away.
1: And Brian, uh, besides agriculture, are you researching any other uh, commercial industrial uses of drones?
4: Sure. And um, I'll actually bring it back to our discussion on reliability that we were just having. Um, One of the big reasons that you don't have commercial airlines falling out of the sky is because they're designed and certified to such a high level of reliability. Um, The FAA requires that we design these these commercial aircraft uh, to have Uh, so the likelihood of a fault in any given flight hour has to be less than um, 10 to the minus 9 which is very very small now that doesn't make sense for UAVs um, just because we can't manufacture UAV that way Um, these commercial airlines are achieving this level of safety by having three of everything so they have three flight computers uh, three actuators on every control surface so there's a huge amount of redundancy and you can think that you just can not fit that level of redundancy on a UAV. And even if you could, that would drive the price up so high that nobody could afford it. And so a large area of research that we're doing is trying to figure out whether you can use some software algorithms instead of hardware redundancy. So can you use software to automatically detect that part of the UAV is no longer working correctly and reconfigure it in real time to keep it flying um, So it's reconfiguring around the parts that aren't working. And that's an active area of research that we're doing. Um, In fact, not too long ago, uh, we were doing some flight tests where we had a, a fixed wing UAV. So it has a lot of control surfaces. And we simulated as if all those control surfaces, except for one, was broken. And we were able to detect that in real time and reconfigure the aircraft in real time to keep flying off just that one control surface. Now, it wasn't flying well at all, um, but it was flying well enough that it could miss your car and miss your house and and put the aircraft down in a safe, unpopulated area.
1: Hmm, interesting. You know, I was just reading an article, and it may have been at dronelife.com, Andrew, I don't remember, about a UAV being used for maintenance on a bridge. And if you think about that, if you think about bridges in New York, for example, getting someone underneath the infrastructure of a bridge to look under there is a pretty precarious task for the person doing that climbing under the bridge. But the UAV seems likely that it could perform that task very, very easily. Maintenance may be a huge area for drones. Would you agree, Andrew?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, Like you say, that's not the safest job in the world and if you can automate it and not put someone in danger that's ideal right uh the other one is like i mentioned before is uh building inspections uh just recently here in Boston we were we talked to a company that used drones they were inspecting the outside of uh, academic buildings for cracks and just kind of routine maintenance that they usually they said they would hire you know, people to rappel off the side of the building and go down floor by floor and window by window. And they have to, you know, mark everybody off and mark the sidewalk off in the bottom and close it all off and have people on the bottom spotting. And it was a multiple-day project. And they used a drone, and they did the whole thing in about a day with half as many people. So you have less people in dangerous position, you're saving money, you're saving time, it's definitely hugely advantageous.
2: Andrew, is mean,
1: kind a of projection for uh uh the growth in this industry I mean it sounds to me absolutely explosive as you think of all the uses of, you know, just quadcopters alone.
3: Yeah, and there's lots of projections. Um there's no concrete numbers yet. It's difficult because a lot of the manufacturers, both of hardware and software, kind of keep those numbers close to the vest. Um, Most of the professional projections are that we're adding hundreds of thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in the next 10 years. So uh, everybody is pretty optimistic about the future here.
2: I was just thinking about uh, what occurred this past uh, two weeks with regards to the two escaped prisoners. It might have been a lot cheaper putting up uh, three 400 drones rather than putting out 1,300 police officers through the woods in perhaps being able to track down, you know, in the, in the criminal justice system, um, you know, escaped uh, convicts.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You think about the... Uh the fixed wing crafts that we were just talking about with an infrared camera at 300 feet can cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time, and you'd imagine it would go pretty quickly
1: well I also see that that they think that this is going to become the uh, police department's next best friend is just that kind of uh, that kind of device i and then I have to think, gosh, then there's going to be the private sector wanting to use the drone to police the police like they now have cameras on their uniform to see what's going on we're going to have drones all over the place this is going to be like uh, flies and
2: mayflies in may um Uh, speaking about that what what is the smallest drone that's now being used for some commercial application and what is it being used for
3: um, you know, the smallest drones that are being used either legitimately or illegitimately for commercial uses are are probably the ones that you see on the news when somebody crashes one somewhere. Um, so they're about 18 inches across. There are much smaller drones, obviously, that can fit in the palm of your hand. But at the moment, they're more just kind of selfies extensions, they're just there to take pictures of you because they're not, the resolution isn't great, the flight time isn't great, it's not um, super useful data that's being acquired. What is being worked on by several companies is the idea of using, again, small drones that can fit in the palm of your hand, but in swarms. So, instead of using one drone to create a 3D model of a building or a bridge, you use a swarm of 20 or 25 that gets 20 or 25 different shots of the same subject and can quickly throw together uh, a 3D model. But that's still several years out because it's not um, perfected technology yet. And as you mentioned before, one of the big obstacles is battery life. And uh, it's difficult to fit a long-lasting battery on a machine that fits in the palm of your hand that's not that's running four motors as fast as a drone does
2: well aside from uh, Amazon and UPS and all the obvious uh, uh, companies that are looking to use this for their own uh, commercial applications who else do we know out there that are either has plans or will be using them shortly for uh, either delivery purposes or uh, even real estate, where they can take pictures of homes and show people pictures of homes before they even take them out to see the homes? Uh, so, are there any names out there that we all our listeners will recognize it, to see that where this is going?
3: Um, you're talking about like brands?
2: That's probably right, yes. Yeah.
3: So yeah. Uh, the obvious one, um, is just, and it's not really delivery, it's more photography, like you were saying, but at the, um, U.S. Open, and NBC has actually been pretty on top of it as far as using drones for their broadcasts. The last Olympics, they were using drones. Um, they're using drones in these big outdoor sporting venues. Uh, so next time you're watching it and you see these aerial shots or these shots that may look a little different, you say, oh, that makes sense that they used a drone for that shot. Uh, mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. even commercials now, I forget what I was watching just last night, but it was, I believe it was a car commercial or something, and uh, you look at it and you say, well, that's pretty close to the ground, looking straight down, going pretty fast. That has to be a drone shot because it's, you couldn't get a helicopter that low, and you couldn't get uh, a stationary camera to cover that much ground that quickly. So uh, everywhere. They're, they're popping up everywhere.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, We're going to come back to this discussion in just a few moments. We're going to take a quick commercial break for Manufacturing Talk Radio, and we'll be back shortly.
0: Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back.
2: American
5: Crane and Equipment Corporation
2: in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778.
0: All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290.
5: How do you keep your business humming? where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment components mro supplies repair services or even raw materials 30 years ago you would have turned to the thomas register today those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery you can easily find that local machine shop national distributor oem or any supplier having the right quality certification fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings, simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line.
0: Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're talking about the use of commercial drones or drones in commercial applications. And we're speaking with Andrew Amato, who's General Manager and Editor-in-Chief of DroneLife.com, and Brian Taylor, who's the Director of the University of Minnesota Uninhabited Area Vehicle Laboratory. And, Brian, I want to go to you for just a moment. You know, I recall watching the movie Get Smart and the two lab rats had created a drone the size of a fly. And we all looked at that and laughed and thought that was cool. And somebody from the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency either stood up and took a note or stood up and said, oh, they stole our idea, great. Uh, what other kind of way out thinking is there at the University of Minnesota, because students can be incredibly creative for UAVs.
4: Sure. Um, we have a couple of programs that I guess you could consider way out there. Uh, one is considering what would happen if GPS went away. So manned aircraft have a lot of different ways of figuring out where they're located, um, both via instruments, but also the pilot can look out the window. Um, drones don't really have that. And so, um, GPS is a critical instrument on drones right now, and one of the areas that we looked at in the past was um, using cell phone signals to figure out where you're located. Um, That worked pretty well, Um, but the really far out bit that we're looking at now is what we call signals of opportunity, so that's anything out there that creates some kind of radio frequency signal that you can use, um, including lightning, and so lightning, believe it or not, creates some... Uh, radio frequency waves that travel huge distances. And so we're looking at whether uh, you can have UAVs measuring these radio waves off lightning bolts and figuring out where they're located.
1: Any talk, Brian, about uh, a drone having, for instance, multiple cameras like a a spider has multiple eyes and somebody wearing I can see someone wearing a 3D imaging uh, set of goggles, and they're the pilot, and they're sitting in uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, and they're flying drones around the country, and they just, if you will, look out the window to see where they are. Any discussion of that?
5: Um,
4: we are using cameras, some for navigation, but it's mostly um, all on board as far as either try to find landmarks on the ground to figure out where you're located or looking at the movement of the ground below the camera and you can at pixel level figure out um, what direction and how fast you're moving and use that to figure out where you're located. Um, I would say on the business side and the more serious drone use side, um, using these goggles and and video cameras. is less desirable because it would mean having somebody sit there. I I think the pinnacle of promise for these drones is the ability for business to launch them and kind of forget about them and just rely on the data coming back. And so to get to that point, you really need to take the human out of the loop.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Andrew, how about uh, use in manufacturing? You know, I envision some of these factories, which are, you know, 120, 180,000 square feet. And somebody down on the fourth assembly line has got a problem in keeping things moving because they don't have a left handed wing nut. And it's going to take them 15 minutes to go walk to find it, to bring it back, to screw it back on. you talk about use of these inside buildings to perform certain tasks?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me first say that I totally agree with what Brian just said about how drones, the, the whole point is the autonomy in taking the human out of the equation, but I think you're right in that, yeah, you think about, you put a RFID scanner on a drone, and that's your warehouse management. You're, you're, you're done. It just flies around, it scans, barcodes, and inventory can be taken in no time. In the same way, you know, another oh. quick little mechanism, it, oh, I need my left-handed wing nut. You ask the drone to fly it to you, like go and find it and let me know where it is, or go and ideally grab it and bring it to me. And the drone can fly into this giant warehouse, find the part, and bring it out in a matter of minutes because it has some computer telling it locationally where it should be, and then it has onboard capabilities that it can scan the barcode and know exactly, yep, here it is.
1: You know the question that's going to pop into people's minds, and uh, we're going to talk a, do a show on robotics, and here's one on drones, where we're talking about the uh, the pinnacle of performance being the elimination of the human factor in this. Um, and then you have to ask yourself, okay, what happened to my job? And is does the job simply uh, mutate into a software programmer role rather than uh, putting the screw on the nut. Um, you know, yeah. I'll throw that out to, yeah, I'll throw that out to Andrew, and then I want to go to Brian on that.
3: Sure, yeah. Um, I think that's, you know, as advanced as these machines are, they are going to need upkeep, quite a bit of it, um, especially early on. Um, so I think, yeah, it, the maintenance and the coating is going to create a lot of opportunity.
1: And, Brian, you know, we have talked on many shows about the uh, millennial generation, those folks 18 to 30 who are now uh, building in the population and are going to replace a lot of us gray hairs uh, in the manufacturing industry. And these are the folks who are thinking about, uh, you know, what's my next job going to be? So at the University of Minnesota, working through the UAV laboratory, uh, are they now beginning to, feedback to you, what they think their next role is going to be, or their first role in corporate America uh, in the uh, UAV world?
4: Yeah, I mean, we certainly get a lot of feedback from uh, students that have gone out on internships, but I would say even more so um, I get a lot of phone calls from uh, startup companies and even established companies looking for people. Um, It's such a fast paced world right now that they're having a hard time finding people with the right skill set to work on uavs and to work on them in a way that they can very quickly take an idea and prototype it and implement it in a drone and so um, we're having a hard time sending finding enough students finding enough people that are qualified to send to these companies
1: it sounds like a pretty cool area to work in i certainly think that a lot of millennials would be attracted to it because what we've run across is that a lot of parents think of manufacturing as uh, dark, dirty, and dangerous. And that was 50 years ago. It's no longer the case. Now it's an iPad, and you're doing all kinds of neat uh, technology stuff in a manufacturing environment. So it's going to be fascinating, and, and we also see that there's going to be a huge shortage of people.
2: Uh, as well, uh, Lou. What are you? Uh, 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 I've been I've been sitting here and kind of conjuring up uh, you know some real way out thoughts and one in particular, and uh, I, I don't haven't read anything about this, but is there any uh, place for drones in the security industry? Um, I, I was sitting here thinking about a an industrial plant that or, or a jewelry diamond cutting plant where uh, a break-in uh, could be detected and an uh, auto drone takes off and uh, watches and waits for the uh, criminals to hop in their uh, vehicle and drive off, and it just follows them, notifies the police, and picks them up at destination. <laughs> is, that, is that something that's really way off the uh, beaten path, or is that something that's doable? Or did I just let out a huge huge great idea <laughs> uh,
3: that last one probably is what happened
2: really yeah, right. I'm, I'm not going to say anything
1: more
2: website right now
1: <laughs> uh, andrew what is happening in terms of what uh you know drone life talks about in their website in terms of using uh, uh drones for security
3: anything well one one thing that comes to mind really quickly is uh, a company called Sci-Fi Works, which when they started with that, a similar idea, their first drone models were actually tethered drones. So they were essentially um, movable cameras in the sky. You know, you think of the Diamond Factory, whatever your example was, you put a bunch of these essentially generators with the drones on a tether, and so it has a limited flight range, but it, since it's tethered to a generator, it can fly indefinitely and you just have a live stream on a movable camera wherever you want uh, that camera to be around your premises. Now, as far as deploying them to chase a potential burglar, that would take a different drone probably, but um, definitely realistic use case for sure.
1: I mean, there's wow. an armed drone that just you know, fires off a rocket and blows off their left rear tire and slows <laughs> them down. No good. <laughs>
3: You'd have to talk to the DOD about that one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Brian, anything else that uh, has been particularly fascinating that's uh, popped up at the uh, the laboratory?
4: You know, I think it's just fascinating um, the way this industry is changing aeronautics. Um, Just all these different use cases as far as the security that you just mentioned, but It's almost any use case where you can think of something that a person has to do now that's routine or a large amount of data that has to be gathered, and a drone would be perfect for that. And I can't think of any other point in really the history of aeronautics that's as poised for a huge shift as the UAV or
3: UAS industry is today.
1: Yeah, Andrew, how's your feeling on that?
3: yeah I definitely agree with that you know uh something we were just a story we were just working on is about Google's new initiative. They want to get into the drone space, but something they learned was in order to get these drones to be flying safely, they need to know you know where the other airplanes are where the airports are, so they're actually looking at overhauling the entire air traffic like manned air traffic control uh infrastructure, which from all the pilots I've spoken to, say, has been in desperate need of an overhaul since the 80s because the technology is so out of date. And we live in a world where it shouldn't be, air traffic, current air traffic control shouldn't be as backwards as it is. Um, So I think this push, like you say, in aeronautics is just, it's from the ground up, so there's a lot of work to be done, but that means there's a lot of opportunity Just keep the government
2: out of it. Just keep the government out of it.
3: Yeah, well, that's (laughs) kind of Google's M.O., isn't it? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: I also see that there are a number of stories cropping up in the press where uh, individuals who might not like a drone flying in what they think is their airspace, Uh, use it for target practice, a little skeet shooting with their shotgun to take it out of the sky. Is that becoming more prevalent?
3: (laughs) I wouldn't say it's becoming more prevalent. Um, It's definitely happened before, and it hasn't ended well for the shooter uh, in any case.
1: What's what's happened to the shooter? That's a good point.
3: The the most recent example in California... uh, happened a little while ago, but the court recently ordered that guy that he had to pay for the damaged drone, the destroyed drone, essentially, because you're destroying someone else's property.
1: I don't imagine that they they shine very brightly on them discharging a weapon into the sky either to take but out that, the
3: UAV. Well, that's the other thing. Um, why, you know, <laughs> you're not supposed to be shooting a uh, gun that close. To, well, I don't know the California laws, but shooting a gun that close to the house, you must think probably violate some law especially in california
1: certainly probably does um at the at the university of minnesota's lab um brian you know how did that all get started and where do you see going over the next five years
4: so it got started back in 2006 um with the previous director who had some pretty close ties to nasa langley um and nasa langley uh built a UAV to do um, low-cost research and high-risk research. So they could do this research, put the drone in situations where you really well, wouldn't want to put a pilot into. Um, and they gave that aircraft to us, and we uh, started building up the lab from there. Um, recently, we've, we've grown it with more and more grants. Um, and moving forward, I see us uh, moving more and more into... Um, the applied UAV or applied drone industry and and doing some research in those areas. Um, One of the more recent things that's interesting is the upcoming uh, notice of proposed rulemaking from the FAA as far as how do you fly these uh, legally um, for the commercial industry. And then um, there's also some regulations around the software and communications infrastructure that's uh, going to be coming out. And so, Applying more towards that, doing research that we can then spin off or open source release to industry seems to be the the direction that we're headed.
1: Uh, Andrew, all these are very cool, uh, but they all rely on uh, something uh, in the form of a camera. Where's camera technology for drones right now?
3: Um. You can equip pretty much any camera to any drone. You just need a big enough drone with enough lift. Um, you know, it's even the small, the latest DJI Phantoms. Um, the custom camera there is in 4K, which is absurd, mm. absurdly high re- resolution. Um, even more, uh, more cheaper drones that can just carry a GoPro. The new, latest GoPro um, can take pictures in 4K. So, even little guys can put out really detailed pictures, but then you could take professional uh video cameras and stick it on a larger maybe three foot across drone and shoot some really impressive video and then you can also put you know uh infrared and that kind of camera on or sensor on even a small drone and Gather a lot of data pretty quickly
2: if uh, any of our listeners uh, came up with any bright ideas on application where they may be able to use it within their own manufacturing facility or manufacturing facility property and so on, uh, just so we we haven't addressed anything regarding cost I mean is this a, a doable cost for uh, uh, our listeners to be able to afford to do
3: well the first thing I would say is set your expectation um, you really even some basic use cases at this at the moment take a level of autonomy that doesn 't exist for small drones um, but if you 're really enthusiastic about it, I would say go get one. And learn to fly it yourself, so that you can understand the capabilities and the limitations of what you can get for a thousand dollars. Because in some cases, I think you'll be really impressed, and in other cases, you might say, "Oh, it still needs, still got a little bit to go before it can do exactly what I want it to do."
2: So let us get your uh, information, so that listeners might be able to contact you. Uh, if you mind giving us either your email address or your uh, website address.
3: Sure. So the uh, the website that I started with my co-founder is dronelife.com, um, and you can reach me there at editor@dronelife.com. At and we recently launched a, a sister website that's a service for people who want someone to come out and fly a drone to take pictures of a house they're trying to sell or a building they're trying to inspect and that website is called jobfordrones.com.
1: And uh, Brian, if uh, you want people to reach you at the University of Minnesota, you know, give out whatever uh, email address or uh, a website address you're comfortable with sharing with our listeners.
4: Sure, and definitely feel free to reach out. Um, our address is very easy. It's www.uav.com uh and my email address is br.taylor@umn.edu. at
2: Could you give that first part again? Uh, I was trying to write it and blew it.
4: <laughs> sure. The, uh, the web address is uav so uninhabited aerial vehicle dot aem for aerospace engineering and mechanics dot umn for university of Minnesota dot edu.
2: Thank you. That's
1: quite a, uh,
4: that's quite a Well, we'll
1: uh, certainly get, and we'd like to get uh, some of that uh, from you folks uh, in writing. By the way, we would like to put uh, a couple of links up on our website to link out to you folks uh, so that when people come and listen to this show, which we will have up on our website in our uh, previous shows area, And for additional resources, uh, we'd like to have some links to go out to you folks. Um, Anything else, Brian, that let's talk about manufacturing for just a moment as we kind of near the end of the show. Uh, Do you have any uh, problem hearing from manufacturers uh, looking to the University of Minnesota, whether they're from Minnesota or some other state, about uh, UAV solutions or ideas they have that they would like to discuss with you?
4: No, no problem at all. Um, In fact, we we work a lot with local and national uh, businesses, both through grants and partnerships. Um, And we spin off companies and uh, I guess I should say we're very open working that way. Um, All of our infrastructure, I guess this is for universities as well as business, but all of our infrastructure, all of our plate data, everything's released open source under um, MIT license. So, um, that's another opportunity of, of sharing with us.
1: Well, that's interesting because one of the questions I think I asked Andrew and didn't get back to you on Brian was, uh, how do you see, uh, academia transferring knowledge to industry for UAVs?
4: So one way, obviously, like I just mentioned, open sourcing everything, um, Not all universities love to do that, but we kind of see it as a way of giving back to our greater community, um, both locally and nationally. Um, And then we also work with industry quite a lot on grants and, like I say, grants and startups and partnerships. Um, It's always nice to have an industry partner on whatever we're doing. So we have an industry partner on our agriculture grant, and that just helps keep us going in the right direction and and not looking um, so far in the future that it couldn't be implemented.
1: Interesting, because I think uh, one of the things that we've looked at uh, as we've had guests on the show on a number of different topics is this interchange between academia and industry, particularly as we bring the millennials from academia into industry and, you know, how they – how the academia – kind of throttles them up in their knowledge base fast enough and some of the challenges that industry has in in finding them quick enough to fill three and a half million jobs that us gray hairs are going to retire out of and the projection is something like a million and a half or two million people being uh, available to fill the new jobs and there's going to be some kind of a void the delta being about a million five jobs that again nobody can find a person to fill. That would be very, very
3: challenging.
1: Uh, Andrew, as we uh, wrap up the show here, anything else you want to share with our listeners on drones or drone life?
3: Um, As far as on drones, I would just say, you know, if you're curious, go out and get your hands on one, but make sure you read the rules and know your local rules before you take off because the last thing you want to do is, Get in trouble with somebody or immediately crash, which I (laughs) promise I have no experience with that whatsoever. But um, (laughs) it's very easy to break your drone on the first flight. So just uh, do your research before you take off.
1: And and I know when my son first got his drone, which I got on Amazon.com, by the way, for about 80 bucks. It's now about 60 bucks. First thing he did was take it about 100 feet in the air, and a gust of wind caught it and blew it into a tree.
5: Yep, that'll (laughs) do it.
1: 85 feet off the ground, and I looked at it and said, how are you getting that one out? (laughs) So that's certainly easy to do. Uh, Brian, anything else uh, from the university perspective you want to share before we wrap up the show?
4: Um, Just building on what Andrew said, the FAA actually – surprisingly has a a wonderful source of getting this sort of information. So it's FAA.gov at UAS is where all this is located. Um, I heard from them just last week that they have a beta app for your phone now. Um, where if you download it from their website, you can boot up this app, and it'll tell you if you're safe to fly where you're currently located. Um, Once it's out of the beta stage, it'll be available in in the app stores. So that's a a good way of staying out of trouble.
1: Very cool. Lou? Uh,
2: Great great stuff, great show. And and I'm going to have to talk to my security guy about my idea (laughs) and, and see if there's any commercial value to this. Uh, we only have about a minute or so left. I just want to remind everybody who have not listened to the show in its entirety that this was a great show, interesting, high techy stuff. Uh, and the show will be available uh, to be heard uh, right after the show. And uh, that's all part of our new technology, that we can do that. And uh, next week, I just want to remind everyone that we're going to be back again on Tuesday with our uh, – in- Institute of Supply Management, Brad Holcomb, who will be giving the uh, report on business, uh, which I'm projecting here early is going to be better than it was last month. Uh, All that from our All Metals and Forge group. And uh, Tim, I throw it back at you. And that kind of wraps us up for Manufacturing Talk Radio today. We want to thank
1: Brian Taylor, Director of the University of Minnesota Uninhabited Area Vehicle Laboratory, and Andrew Amato, General Manager and Editor-in-Chief of DroneLife.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with you next week.
0: Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com.